Good morning. We are thankful for everyone being here this morning. Our lesson today comes from Psalm 144. And I entitled this lesson, Reasons Why, because when we think about some of the things that happen in life and some of the many blessings that God has given us and God being there for us during the most difficult times of all, sometimes we want to consider why the Lord does the things that he does. And since why does God you know, love us? Why do we treat God sometimes the way that we do? I want us to begin, if you will, open your Bibles, and this won't be on the screen. You'll have to work with it a little bit this morning. But Psalm 143, our text is going to be Psalm 144, but Psalm 143 kind of gives us some insight there into why the things are said and that are in Psalm 144. It begins in Psalm 143 by saying, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me, and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no, no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Now, Psalm 143, some believe it's about him and his difficulties with Absalom. Others believe, believe it's about him and Saul. So it could be referencing him hiding in caves and things such as, such as that in verse 3. But it really doesn't matter who it is because he just simply calls them his enemy. Verse 4, therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. We think about those words. Paul, or excuse me, rather, David, rather, is most definitely calling upon God to help him from all his enemies around him. You know, we think about our enemies today, if you want to use that term, we may not think of it in the same way in which David was using it, as he was literally sometimes going to war, other times dealing with physical attacks. But we do have those who have made themselves our enemies, haven't we? We have those who do not like us very well because of the life we have chosen to live, the Christian life. We have those who will say things against us, say things about us, sometimes to us, sometimes behind our backs, sometimes on social media. And we find they have made themselves our enemies. So we may at times find ourselves using similar phrases as, as David, asking for God to help us deal with those who are against us. I want you to notice before we get more into our lesson, what, notice the first verse of Psalm 144 and notice what it says. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. 
Blessed be the Lord, my rock. Would you say those things if the Lord had not been with you? Would you say something like, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, if he had not provided you with some type of response, some way in which he is going to help you? Now we know in verse 1, he goes on to say, He trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. I think of this many times today, how we can apply this in the sense that we are provided ways for us to deal with those hard times that come into our lives when we have those who are against us. Not merely just dealing with our own hard times and, and uh, finances or whatever it may be, but actually having to deal with people who do not like us and are saying things against us. Those who are actually attacking us without cause unjustly. And we find in verse 1, he says, Who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Trains means he is preparing David to deal with these things which are coming upon him. Now as we get into our more of our lesson specifically this morning, I want to begin by looking at reasons why we need God. You may think, well, that's silly. We may say sometimes, we say this phrase, you're preaching to the choir. But sometimes a choir has to be preached to, doesn't it? <laughs> to be able to use that idea. We need to be reminded of things, but also we know, we know full well there are those who we love dearly who would do well to remember why they need God. Because without God, mankind is not going to make it very long. Why do we need God? Because man faces hardships, and we don't want to limit this just to sickness and, and illness or physical conditions or, or financial things. We're talking about hardships when maybe we're losing our job. Maybe we are having those who are attacking us, those who are trying to, to harm us, say things about us or about our families, whatever the case may be. How do we deal with those who actually made themselves our enemy? Man faces hardships. We will face different, different hardships in this life. Thus, man needs to put his reliance on someone who is faithful. Go back to Psalm 44 here, as we have on the screen this time. 44, 1 and 2. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. You think about the numerous ways in which he uses to describe God in verses 1 and 2. First, he says he is the rock in verse 1. Verse 2, he is his loving kindness. He is his fortress. He is his high tower. He is his deliverer. He is his shield. He is the one whom I take refuge. That's at least seven ways in which he views him. And he talks about how he subdues those who are under him. I think really is a reference to those citizens who are under him as him being king. Think about those terms, my loving kindness. He uses that quality to describe God in, in an overall sense of, of saying that he is loving kindness. He is, a, he is, he says there in verse 2, my fortress, my high tower, and my deliverer. My shield and the one whom I take refuge. Notice how many of those things are, they are used, are Many times used in a defensive, defensive way. The fortress. Why do you build a fortress to defend yourself and to remain secure? High tower. The idea is you're way off the ground. You have a good line of sight, and you're away from immediate harm. 
shield, that's pretty obvious, right? My deliverer is one who delivers him out of harm's way. Place of refuge is a place of safety. All those can be a reference to a place of safety and defense that he uh, attributes here to God. So what does that mean to us today? God is our place of safety, isn't he? The church should be our place of safety. He is our source of comfort. He is our, he is our place of refuge, he says there in verse 2. David faced many hardships in his own life. We know that his sons rebelled, Absalom rebelled, and Abijanai tried to take the throne from his brother Solomon. And so we know that David saw, and of course Saul as well, and David, so David saw a lot of rebellion and hardship in his own life from some because of others. Some hardships we know very well that he, he saw because of his own stupidity, right? But nonetheless, he still came back and relied upon God. Hard times, we must remember, do not come from God. Hard times do not come from God. Hard times come because of the actions of others or because of, because of our actions against God. Look at verse 11 of the same psalm. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lying words, whose right hand is, is a right hand of falsehood. Why well, was he having a hard time? Because of others. Falsehood is basically saying they're, li- they're liars and other doings around speaking lies. That never happens today, right? Anybody ever lie? Anybody ever be deceitful? Anybody ever be dishonest? Only all the time. All the time. He wants to be to be what? He wants to be rescued and delivered from what? From the hand of foreigners, from up from these strange people who are doing what? They're speaking lies, they're being deceitful, and he wants to be delivered from them. No doubt events may take place in our life that we do not understand. We don't always understand why people get sick, why people die. But life is full of things that we do not fully understand, right? But that doesn't mean that God is not with us. Did Job understand what was going on in chapters 1, 2, and following? No. If you remember in Job chapter 1 and 2 when Satan is and the Lord are pictured as having a conversation and the Lord gives all these compliments we had about Job, that Job didn't hear any of that? He didn't hear about how great he was as servant of God? All Job knew was all his servants were dying his children are dead. Everything he possessed was pretty much gone. It was just him, his wife, and a few of his servants. And now he is covered in some type of, of boils from head to toe. And his friends were telling him, you're in sin. Did he understand what was going on? No. Did he always speak highly of, of what was happening to him and, and place some blame on God unfairly, wanting to question him? Yes. He didn't understand what was going on. But later in his life, as we know, we get to the end of the, chapter, end of the book of Job, when he has revealed what is happening to him, that Job repents and comes back to his senses, you might say, in many ways. And so there are those things that may happen in our lives that we do not understand. But we have to learn from Job and not make the mistake of acting or feeling like the Lord is not with us. You know, Christ, before ever going to the cross... Faced those who hated him with a fiery vengeance, didn't he? They wanted to stone him. They told him he was doing miracles by the power of Satan, which is ridiculous, right? Hard times, wouldn't you say? 
but he knew God was there with him. The disciples and the apostles faced numerous difficulties in their, in their life, didn't they? But they were wise enough, especially following Acts chapter 2, to know that the Lord was still there with them. Daniel in the, of, in, the, in the den of lions knew that he was there unjustly, but he knew the Lord was with him because lions would usually eat a man who's in, who's in a cave with them, right? A burning fiery furnace usually consumes people, and it did, but even those who threw, threw in those three friends, they're also in the book of Daniel. But the Lord was with them. See, we don't always understand sometimes those things that happen in our lives. It doesn't mean the Lord is not with us. We don't mean to understand that our children act in certain ways, but do we understand they still love us? Yeah, probably so. So we must not allow the things that we are unable to fully understand to convince us that God is not there with us because that is not the case. Man fails when he tries to be self-sustaining. And we're talking about in a spiritual sense. There's nothing wrong with being self-sustaining in various parts of our life when it comes to our spiritual lives. We cannot do anything on our own. No one will ever reach heaven by saying, well, I, well, this is what I thought was right to do, so this is what I did it. Well, it didn't work. It doesn't work that way. Look at Psalm 40, 144, looking at verses 7 through 10. He says, Stretch out your hand from above, rescue me, and, and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lying words, and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings and who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Now we think about what's happening here in verses 7 and 10. Does this sound like he's self-reliant? No. You can't be self-reliant and call upon God to help you at the same time, not spiritually speaking. If you cannot say, I'll do every, I can take care of all this myself and at the same time pray to God. It's like saying, I can do everything myself, I don't need one's help, and then going asking the government for money. You're not very self-reliant, are you? And so, if we are going to be self-reliant spiritually, that means that we don't turn to God anymore. But here, this David is pictured as being not self, self-sustaining spiritually, but he is, he is turning to God to sustain him, to get him through what's, what's happening. Stretch out your hand, not my hand, right? Your hand. Rescue me is a sign of asking someone else to do it. Deliver me, asking someone else to do it. Who speak lying words. He talks about more of those enemies there in verse 8. In verse 9, he sings praises to God. Verse 10, the one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. He's speaking as if he's already done it because he knows he will do it and he knows that God has done it before. Think about this for a moment. If you had to pick maybe the very first time that, that God was with David, that we clearly see, that we can say without a doubt that God was with him, what's the first time that comes to your mind? Maybe when he stood in front of a giant with a sling? Was God with David? Yeah. A rugged, small, in comparison to giant, with a man with a sling, usually doesn't overcome a giant of roughly nine feet tall, but when that day he did, didn't he? And David knew that. We know when, when, 
when David was even speaking to Goliath and to, to all those who were listening, that he, he gave glory to God, that the Lord will be the one who gives the victory, right? I'm paraphrasing, but that's the idea, isn't it? The, the battle belongs to the Lord. Man is prone to take many matters into his own hands, forgetting that the God of heaven rules over the affairs of men. In verses 9 and 10, again, we were reminded, it is God who rescues man out of trouble. It is him who delivers him from the hardships. It is God. Reasons why we should give God glory. Reasons why we should give God glory. We live in an age, and I think we have probably for a long time, where men, and I say men, I mean mankind in general, we like to take credit for things sometimes, don't we? And I think sometimes we forget, and Chris talked about this a little bit in class this morning, that it's not, it doesn't matter who does what, as long as certain things that need to be done get done, right? God gives man many blessings. You look at James chapter 1 and verse 17, we are reminded that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or a shadow of turning. You can think about that as God never leaving. That would be true. You also think about it in the sense that God's blessings will never stop for the faithful servant of God. There is no variation, meaning that his blessings come, that come, from, come from God. His blessings are what? Perfect. And there is no variation or shadow of turning, which means that never changes. God's blessings never change from good to bad. You know, there are blessings sometimes in, in recognizing that God has told us no about something we have prayed about. We may not feel that way at the time, but there are sometimes blessings, even when we think something is negative. But rest assured, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, comes from the Father. We go back to Psalm 144, looking at verses 13 through 15. He says that our barns may be full... Why does he want God delivering them? Because he knows when God delivers him from their enemies and what's going to happen, God's going to bless them. Why? Because they have put their faith in God to deliver them from their enemies. That our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce. That our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. You know, today we may say the same thing. I wish our barns was full of produce, don't you? I wish our homes were full of produce. Or homes full of food, whatever it may be. We could say a similar prayer that David does here. That our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out. That there be no outcry in the streets. That is, there's no battle, there's no unrest, there's no raging, there's no rioting in the streets. There is no outcry, there is peace. He says, happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. I don't, think, I don't think it's wrong to say that those who have these blessings mentioned in verses 13 to 14 are those who are very much in a happy state. But the reason they're in that state is because of the latter part of verse 15. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Why are they blessed? Because their God is the Lord. Why are their barns going to be full and all these things happening? Because their God is the Lord. They have put their faith in God. They have put their trust in God. Happy are the people, he says, who are in such a state. That state being that right relationship with God. We give God glory because, he, because God gives man many blessings. We give God glory because man is feeble while God is mighty. We cannot do anything in comparison to what God does, right? 
You know, we have to think about, think about this way. Is it the gospel that saves a person, or is it the teacher teaching the gospel that saves the person? It's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is what does the saving. See, we don't save people in that sense. The gospel is what saves people. The Bible tells us we are called by the gospel, right? See, man is feeble in many ways. I don't necessarily mean just physically, but God, however, is mighty. God considers man, despite us being frail and too often spiritually weak. Look at Psalm uh 144 verses 3 and 4. O Lord, what is man that you take, take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. He's talking about how quickly our lives pass on. I'm going to sound very old, but I remember the day we brought Chloe home. It doesn't seem like it was 13 plus years ago. That went by really, really quick, didn't it? Doesn't seem like we've been at Ulagov for. I mean, we're not the pre, I'm not the preacher now, but ten plus years doesn't seem like it's been that long. Maybe it seems like twenty to you, but it doesn't seem that long to me. Time goes by really quickly, doesn't it? And he says here in verse four, "Man is like a breath; his days are like a passing shadow. It just goes by so quickly." What is God? Why does God pay so much attention to us? Why does He put so much effort into us? Do you put effort into fixing something that's not, you know it's just going to break five seconds later? Probably not, right? We usually don't spend $20 repairing a $5 general part, whatever it may be, right? We don't do that. But you know, God doesn't view us in that way. He's always there for us and caring for us. I think the real question many times is, are we actually there for God to allow Him, by our obedience, to care for us like we need Him to? Look at Psalm 103, beginning in verse 13. He says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. That's talking about our frailty, right? As, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. See, God doesn't look at us as being just simply that frame that's weak, that life that's going to just be gone almost as fast as the grass. No, instead, look how he describes the Lord in verse 17. His mercy is what? From everlasting to everlasting. God doesn't care how brief our life may seem. He still cares about us. God still wants us to have heaven as our home. God deserves glory because God is always there for us. God is mighty to save. He is mighty in his care. He is mighty in his love. He is mighty in his blessings. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? Reasons to give God glory because God loves man. We are reminded in Romans 5 and verse 8 that God has already demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Does it, do we find in the Bible examples of God loving us? Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, yeah. 
Very simply, very clearly, one extremely powerful example of that is Christ, right? Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That's how he demonstrates his love toward us. That's just one way. He also has stated his love quite plainly in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That is a agape love, which means it's a sacrificial love. That's the Greek term there. As a sacrificial love, he made sacrifice, really more than one, for us, right? Yes, through his son. But he made numerous sacrifices of his time, of his energy, energy you might say, of his long-suffering, of his patience. You ever sacrifice your patience to do something, to accomplish a task? You ever sacrifice your time to accomplish something? See, the Lord has done those same things for us as well. Yes, his son, but more than just that, more than his son as well. Some lessons for us to think about today. God has always blessed man. You think about that very simple statement. God has always blessed man. How do you respond to those who love you? Do you love them in return? Do we show we show them care for them or try to show the same care for them they show for us? How can we show God how much we love him in return for all the love he has shown us and continues to show us? It starts with obedience, doesn't it? We obey him, we continue to obey him, and we help others see what God has done for us, showing them from the Bible, the gospel as well, so they can have the same blessings that we have. We do what God wants us to do, in short. Not because it's a burden, because it shouldn't be viewed that way. Because when someone loves you so much, like God, don't you want others to be able to have that same God love them just as much? You look at Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. We find that man is often left in awe when thinking of the Almighty. Psalm 8, similar, very similar to Psalm 144. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars that you have ordained. Why did God do all that in verse 3? He didn't do it just to look at it, did he? No, he did it for man. Man needs certain things to survive. The same man God created, and he gave us those things. Also, we also find not just that, he also finds ways to reveal himself in his creation. I think verse 3 is a good, good reminder of that. He goes on saying in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? He created all these things, you have all this power. What is it that man, what makes man so special that you are mindful of him? But it quite plainly, God loves man. God wants man to have happiness and joy him being the ultimate source, but does God want us to be happy in life? I don't think I'm looking at all, you know, public speaker, social gospel on here, but does God want us to be happy in life? Yeah. He wants our homes to be filled with joy and happiness. He wants our personal lives to be full of joy and happiness while at the same time following Him. And what's interesting, as we follow God, we'll find that. It doesn't mean we'll have, we'll have days where everything isn't going quite as well as we like, but we'll have joy and happiness, won't we? We should. Look, at, look with me at Psalms uh, 37, beginning in verse 23. 
He says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be early cast down. The Lord upholds him with his hand. What does that mean? That when we fall, God is there what? You know, lift us up. If he's talking about sin, he lifts us up, right? When we repent of those things, the Lord lifts us up, brings us right back with him. The Lord wants us to do those things, and so we're right there with him. Not the idea that you're going to be fine no matter what happens, but the Lord is with us all the time. Verse 25, I have been young, and now am old, yet have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. And I'm always interested interesting to hear those who live longer than me and hear some of the things they have seen in life and some of the things they have experienced. And here this man, he talks about how he says, I've been young and now I'm old. And he says, I've not seen their righteous forsaken, nor their descendants begging bread. He says, I've never seen that. He's saying he's always seen God be faithful. We need to remember that as well. He says in verse 26, he is merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Does the Lord love those who follow him? Most definitely. Does the Lord want us to be with him? Most definitely. Does the Lord want us to be free from the pain and agony of dealing with wicked people? Yes. That's one of the reasons they're cut off. Heaven will not be heaven if the wicked are there, and most definitely they are not. God is always present. God is always present. We think about reasons why we love God, reasons why we give God the glory, reasons why we put our trust and faith in Him, because He's always present. Can you put your trust in someone who is never there? Can you put your trust and rely on someone who is never there when you call upon them asking for whatever it may be, not necessarily even a need, but just calling upon them and they're never there? Look at Hebrews 15 and verse 5. He reminds us here, he says, Let your kind of be without covetousness, but be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a quote from Matthew, right? Where Christ says the same thing. That's who he's quoting there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does that tell us quite plainly? God is always there. He always has been. Look at John 14. Here Christ, you know, Christ is quoted here as saying this, and we apply this, we can apply this to Christ, we can apply that to God as well. Look at John 14, verses 1 through 3, where Christ says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Think about that first phrase. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because we find in verse 3 and following, he says, I'm preparing a place for you, the faithful. We think about this for us today. We should find encouragement knowing that the Lord has prepared a place just for us. That place we call heaven, right? A place that's free of, as Revelation tells us, is free of pain and suffering and crying and heat and all those types of things. 
If you have hip pain, won't, aren't you going to be glad when you get to heaven when you don't have hip pain anymore? There's no limping. You know, think about that. There's no gimpy people in heaven. There's no walkers there. There's no canes. There's none of those things. That should encourage us to think about the kind of place the Lord is preparing for us and what we need to do to make sure that we are there with God. As we close this morning, I want to close this one simple thought here. God has given us many reasons to love and obey Him, so let us not look for excuses for failing to do so. We think about that statement, reasons why. When someone was to ask you, if I was to ask you later, what are some reasons why you follow God? Reasons why you're a Christian. What would you say? We have given just a few reasons today, but friends, make no mistake. The Lord has given us ample reasons to put our undying and unwavering faith in Him. We were reminded repeatedly that the Lord is unwavering. The question is, are we? Have we found enough reasons why to not be, to make sure that we are unwavering in our faithfulness to God? This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. You can come forward now. That's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected.